the hour is late. Right about now, I should be working towards my final point, and that is not happening. So for your sake, and because you know how much I love small talk, I'll dispense with the uh, introduction that all would have made us laugh with things I said about Jedediah and Jason, and we'll just get right down to the text, shall we? So let's take our Bibles and turn in them once again to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, verses that should be somewhat familiar to you, but let us uh, focus our attention on them a little bit more closely. Luke chapter 8, and I know we just read them, but it is still the Word of God. So let's stand once again. We'll read Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he, Jesus, fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see the answer to that question this morning, that you would show us who is this, who commands even the wind and the waves, and they obey him. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would Scatter the darkness by the light of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In 1958, a ship called the Edmund Fitzgerald was launched for the very first time. And when it was launched, it was the largest ship that would sail or actually barge the Great Lakes. Six different times during its 17-year span of service, it set the records for the most tons that it carried on its journeys, usually, typically, from iron mines up in Minnesota down through Superior and down, to the, down through Michigan and down Lake Huron to Detroit and Ohio. But on November 9th, 1975, it set out on its final journey, a journey made famous by the song written and sung by Gordon Lightfoot, who recently passed away, a song that is incredibly accurate, actually. The next day, on November 10th, 1975, a storm came upon Lake Superior, a storm with winds of over 50 miles an hour, generating waves of over 30 feet in height. And we're not exactly sure how or, or why, but those waves sunk the Edmund Fitzgerald, and it remains the largest ship that has ever sunk on the Great Lakes. Today, we read of similar peril. There are not 29 men on this boat, but there are 13. 
And they ask a very penetrating question here at the end, a question that we would like to answer. Who then is this? What is the story of this passage? We're told that one day he got into a boat with his disciples. Now Mark and Matthew also tell the story, and Mark adds some details here about, tell us, sort of fill in the story. Mark tells us that it was actually at the end of the day. It was actually at the end of the day, and evening is sort of coming. It's at the end of the day when Jesus has been teaching, as was his habit, all day. And at the end of this day, the sun is going down, the birds are chirping, getting their last fish out of the Sea of Galilee. They set out. And Jesus says, let's go to the other side. At its widest, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, here Luke calls it a lake, which we would understand it to be a lake, is about seven and a half miles across at its widest. Uh, by, by sense of scale, Lake Michigan is 75 miles across at its typical width. For sense of scale, Lake Michigan covers 22,400 square miles. The entire nation of Israel covers 9,000 square miles. So it is a decent-sized lake. It is a lake. A lake that you can still almost see across if you're in the right spot. And depending on the wind, they were setting out for what was to be a, maybe a two-hour journey if they're sailing it. Maybe four if the wind is against them, but two to four hours. And during this evening sail over this nice calm lake, Jesus fell asleep. Jesus fell asleep. Now, when we sleep, we go through cycles. When we go to sleep, the first cycle is, is from 5 to 15 minutes, where, where generally that is when we lose consciousness. Unless you're worried about a sermon the next morning and somebody's pitting cherries in the kitchen. But 5 to 15 minutes, you generally lose consciousness. And then for about 20 minutes, you are in light but restorative sleep. You're, you're, you're sleeping and, and you're being restored, but it's a light sleep unless it's the 8th of July and people are getting rid of the rest of their fireworks and you're nervous about a sermon the next morning. <laughs> so after, after 35 minutes or so, you go into a deeper state of sleep that lasts for about an hour. And then after this deeper state of sleep, you go into REM sleep, which is incredible. In REM sleep, your eyes are moving, and people say you're just watching your dreams, maybe. And while your eyes are moving, your arms and legs, you are paralyzed. You, you cannot move, but your eyes are moving. So Jesus, it seems, was probably in this, this third state of sleep, this deeper state of sleep, because he was asleep when the storm came, and he kept on sleeping. So they've, they've been out here for probably at least an hour. They're almost halfway. But a storm blows in. And storms can form quickly and without warning on the Sea of Galilee, on the Lake of Galilee, because the Lake of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. Get that? The Lake of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And around it, surrounding it, are peaks, hills, mountains, depending on who you're talking to, that reach up 1,300 feet. So cold air coming up from 2,000 feet higher than the lake comes, can come down on the lake and immediately this cold air from coming down 
meets this warm air resting on the lake, and these storms can kick up. And they did not have a weather app on their smartphones. They did not have the National Weather Service or the Doppler radar in Syracuse. And the disciples, at least four of whom, who made their living on this very body of water, knew what was happening, and they were afraid. They were scared. And they're at their wit's end. Master, master, we are perishing. So what do we do? Well, let's just wake up Jesus. Jesus, wake up. And Luke tells us that he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. Mark, in, in a lot of our translations, adds the words, as we have it, sort of in the ESV, peace be still. But that's a very kind and genteel way that he actually inherited from William Tyndale. The New English translation comes a lot closer to it. The New English translation in Mark 4 says, be quiet, calm down. Then that's close to the sense of what Jesus is saying. Anybody here take Spanish or, or know Spanish in high school or anything? Ah, oh, there's at least one of us. The Spanish translation captures it even better in one of the words. It says, Kaya. And if you've had Spanish, you know from sophomore year, Kayate, shut up. That's what Jesus says. Shut up. Be quiet. I'm trying to sleep here. And it's calm. And after commanding the storm, Jesus questions the disciples, Where, where's your faith? And they can only fear and wonder, right? What have we gotten ourselves into? Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Now this fearful response to the miracles is, is mentioned in the verses that Joseph went on to read. In verse 35, when they see the, the demon cast out in chapter 8. They were afraid there at the end of verse 35. And in verse 37, the same thing. They were seized with great fear. This is a common response to the, to the miracles of Jesus. Fear, afraid. What is going on here? And they were marveled. They, they wondered. They questioned. Another word that Mark, that Luke, rather, uses often in our descriptions of Jesus' encounter with, with how we think things should go. In Luke 2, 33, Joseph and Mary marveled at the words Simeon said about Jesus. In Luke 4, when Jesus began teaching, his teaching ministry in the synagogue, the people marveled at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. In Luke 11, he cast out a demon that caused mutinous. And when the demon had gone out, the man spoke and the people marveled. Matthew, in fact, uses this word marveled to just describe all of Jesus' miracles and the people's response to them. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered, marveled, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. They, they were afraid. 
They marveled. And all they could do is say, who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Who is this that provokes fear and wonder? Who is this that calls for faith? That's the question of the text and the question I want us to look at and consider. Who is this? We see who this is, first of all, as he is the man, Jesus. He is the man, Jesus. And Luke is careful to bring this out in his gospel. He is the man, Jesus. Every week, at the conclusion of the sermon, before we partake in the Lord's Supper, we recite the Apostles' Creed. And in that creed, we say we believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Do we consider what, what that means, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? Several weeks ago, if you're going through the family worship guides, we had the Heidelberg Catechism explain what that means. That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself, through the working of the Holy Spirit, from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a truly human nature, so that he might become David's true descendant, like his brothers in every way except for sin. God did not just plop an embryo into Mary's womb. The catechism there teaches us, and, and throughout church history we read statements like this, that, that he took from Mary to form this baby, this infant in the womb. Jesus had DNA. You could trace Jesus' genealogy. God took from Mary a human nature and conceived by the Holy Spirit and in the womb, the Word. The Word who was in the beginning. The Word that spoke when everything was formless and void and darkness and water surrounding everything went into a place that was formless and void with darkness surrounding everything. The Word by the Holy Spirit took from Mary humanity, human nature, so that he might become a true, that is a real, a genuine, a genealogical descendant of David like his brothers in every way, except for sin. He was born like every one of us in this room. He grew, Luke chapter 2, verse 40. He grew in wisdom and stature and his knowledge and in his height with, with God, in favor with God and men. Are you under 18? Raise your hand. If you are under 18, raise your hand. Jesus was your age. Right, Jesus was a little boy. I know some of you are little girls, so that we'll get over it. But Jesus was a little boy 
He was your age. Jesus had a mother and father who maybe sometimes told him to do things he didn't understand why. But he didn't. Jesus, he was the firstborn, had little brothers and sisters. If you have little brothers and sisters, raise your hand. If you have younger brothers and sisters. Well, the twins are arguing about who's first. (laughs) Technically, Jesus had little brothers and sisters who picked on him. Jesus was a boy, was a child. Jesus grew up. Jesus was a man. And when I say man, I mean a person, a human, a boy. He grew in wisdom. Jesus had to memorize the Bible. Not cool things like Ephesians chapter 2. I mean, Jesus had to memorize Deuteronomy. Can't even say that. He had to memorize it. Jesus had to learn. Jesus had to go to school, so to speak, and train himself. In Luke chapter 4, we're told that Jesus hungered. Jesus got hungry. There were times when when his stomach growled. (laughs) Right? Ugh. I mean, what I wouldn't give for some hummus right now, Jesus had to think. Oh, some, some fresh pita bread out of the oven. Oh, some of that fish out of the, the Lake of Galilee. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted. And here, people say, well, yeah, well, I mean, Jesus was tempted, but, I mean, really... I mean, was he really tempted? I mean, he's Jesus. Can he really sin? <clears throat> if, if the world's greatest arm wrestler walked into this room right now, we, we cleared off the table, and he, and he put out his arm. He'll even use his left hand, he doesn't care. He put down his arm and says, come on, all the papers. Does anybody here think they could beat the world's greatest arm wrestler? We have one. John is a man of confidence. <laughs> Do you think he could probably beat every single person in here? Maybe even more than once. So which one of us would know how strong he really was? How would you have to know how strong he really was? You have to be stronger than he is. You have to be him. So just because you know, people like to say, well, Jesus was God. He couldn't sin. Well, so he couldn't be tempted. No, Jesus, Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the only one. The only man who was tempted in every way without sin. You think, you, oh, if you only knew how strong this temptation was, Jesus knows. Because he beat it. Every time he beat it. Jesus was tempted. Jesus was a man. I think it's a little humorous here 
in the verses we read last week in the Gospel of Luke, verses eight, chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. How do I know that Jesus was a man? Because Jesus was hassled by his family. <laughs> hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. Hey, Jesus, which side of the family are you going to spend Passover with this year? Right? Jesus was hassled by his family. So I know he was a man. And Jesus slept. Jesus slept. The disciples are powerless while Jesus rests and the storm rages. Jesus was a man and he slept. If you do not sleep, you will die. In 1989, an experiment was carried out on 10 rats to see how long they could just stay awake. And after between 11 and 32 days, they all died. Why? We, we don't know why. Their organs just failed. There are three dozen families in the world that have what is called fatal familial insomnia, which tells you everything you need to know in the name. Fatal familial insomnia. Three, three dozen families in the world have this. So if you're in one of those three dozen families and you catch this disease, you will not be able to sleep. And you will die. Because your body needs sleep. Jesus, the man, Jesus, needed sleep. And so the day was long, the night was calm, the boat was rocking steadily across the lake, and Jesus did what many men would do. He fell asleep. The man Jesus. And of course, Luke will go on to show us the greatest demonstration of Jesus' humanity that he died. That when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. About the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. His lungs, as a man, his lungs stopped inhaling and exhaling. His heart stopped pumping, pumping, pumping. He breathed his last, and he died. Deep in slumber, the man Jesus, as the winds rise, the waters pour over the boat, and we are dying. What are we going to do? Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Wake up, Jesus. Jesus, he's asleep. What is he going to do? He's a man. Jesus awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He rebuked. It is the same word that Luke uses earlier in chapter 4 when Jesus rebukes an unclean spirit in 4.35 and rebukes a fever in Luke 4.39. Who is this 
then that commands winds and water and they obey him. Who is this? Hold your place in Luke 8 and let's, let's just take a look at how the Bible might answer that question. Turn back to Psalms, Psalm 29. Who is this that he commands the wind and the waves and they obey him? Psalm 29, verse 3. Psalm 29, verse 3. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders Yahweh over many waters. Look ahead to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Yahweh, with your faithfulness all around us? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And lo and behold, another familiar passage, Psalm 124. Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, Yahweh, let Israel now say, if it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Jesus, a man asleep in the midst of a storm, wakes up and commands the wind. Would you shut up? And it does. It does. You know, a few weeks ago, in this very room, at about 3.30 p.m., Pastor Jason was conducting a wedding ceremony. And he says he was just getting to the good part, the gospel presentation. And what happens? Do you remember what happened a couple weeks ago, about 3, 3.30 in the afternoon? He said, everybody's phone started dinging off, dinging off, dinging off. Why? Because winds were coming in. A storm was coming in. Now, now Pastor Jason, he seems like a pretty good guy. I mean, he's, he's preaching the gospel. Why didn't Jason just say, hey, knock it off. I'm busy here. Why didn't you do that? Sure. <laughs> I mean, hindsight's 20-20. I mean, what would have happened if you would have said that? I really good at fun. He's like, I think he is. Because men do not tell the winds and the waves to just cut it out. Even the best of men. The man Jesus is the God Yahweh. Because who else is over the waters? Who's, whose voice is over the waters? Whose voice stills the waters? Who then is this that commands the wind and the waves and they obey him? It is the God, Yahweh. This is not the first time that Jesus causes people to question their understanding of reality by demonstrating that even in his manhood, in his humanity as the man Jesus, he is something more, something else is going on here. In Mark 127 the gospel says they were all amazed and they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. In Luke chapter 5, 
the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In just the previous chapter, Luke chapter 7, verse 49, then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this that commands demons? Who is this who gives sight to the one born blind? Who is this who gives life to the dead? Who is this that commands the wind and the waves? Who is this that forgives sin? Who then is this? This is just the Savior we need. One who is a man, a human being like us. One who is God in the flesh. Jesus was a man, fully human in all the ways that we are human except for sin. Jesus knows all about our struggles. Jesus did not, Jesus did not just have sympathy for us. Jesus did not just have empathy for us. Jesus identified with us. He took on human flesh. He took on human nature. Jesus is one of us. Jesus is God. Fully God in all the ways that the Father is God except as Son. Fully God in all the ways that the Spirit is God except with flesh. Jesus did not just suffer for us. Jesus did not just die for us. Jesus was victorious for us. He conquered death in the grave. He rose again because death could not hold him. So we then, following the Holy Fathers, confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in Godhood, perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man equal of the same stuff as the Father when we think of what Godhead is, what deity is, everything deity is, everything God is, Jesus is. Equal of the same stuff, of the same essence, of the same nature, everything that makes a man a man, a person a person, Jesus is. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. Jesus rescues the disciples who are at risk of perishing. This physical rescue pictures spiritual truth as the exhortation to have faith makes clear. Jesus, this is the problem, faith. The disciples may have felt that they were alone, but Jesus, even while he slept, was, was there. He was in the boat watching with them. Sometimes the winds fall down upon you. Sometimes the waves rise up through no fault of your own. And so what do you do when the doctor says it's cancer? What do you do when your spouse is diagnosed with Alzheimer's? What do you do when your boss gives you a two-week notice? When your child strays, when your parents pursue divorce, you are afraid, you are filled with questions. Jesus is in the boat. 
He is not troubled, but he exhorts you. Have faith. Rouse him. Wake him. Call him. A temptation has arisen. It is the wind. You are disturbed. It is the wave. Wake Christ up in your heart. Who then is this? Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him. Crown him, Lord of all. Psalm 124 has already been connected to this passage, but we see it connected via application as well, if you're still in Psalm 124. We are told that Yahweh is on our side, that when the flood would have swept over us, that when the torrent would have gone over us, when over us would have gone the raging waters, the Lord was on our side. And the Lord certainly has power over the wind and the waves. He is their creator, their former, their maker, and their controller. But in Psalm 124, what are these storms and waters a metaphor for? What are these winds? What are these floods? What are these torrents? What are these raging waters in Psalm 124 that the Lord has power over? People, people rose up against us. They would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. People, people now, not things like cancer or Alzheimer's or losing jobs, but here in Psalm 124, the winds, the waves, the storms are people rising up against us. They are angry at us. They would trap us. They would swallow us alive. People who are trying to devour and trap us. I think I've confessed it before, but since confession is good for the soul, any news I get or listen to is pretty much NPR on the car radio. Um, yeah, there goes everything you've listened to before. But increasingly, even in the, the right down the middle, we're just telling you the story, even in NPR stories, it is clear what the problem is with, with American culture, with American society. Evangelical Christians, they are the problem. Why are Christians the problem? Why are Christians taken to court for not baking a cake? Why are Christians taken to court for not making a website? Why are Christians bankrupted and attacked for not putting flowers together? Why is the alphabet soup of sexual perversion so hostile to the people of faith? And I want to speak as calmly and rationally as I can here. Because the alphabet soup of sexual perversion is fundamentally and necessarily an ideology of hatred. It hates God and it hates society. 
It hates people. The ideology hates people, and it hates God. How do I know that? Because two men doing whatever they do together do not make more children. Because two women doing whatever they do together do not make more children. Because when you destroy the body that God has given you, when you attack the organs of reproduction, you do not make children. The alphabet soup of sexual perversion is necessarily, it is fundamentally, an ideology of hate and violence against society because it can create no society. It makes no society. It destroys society. And so the alphabet soup of sexual perversion is coming for your children because they can have no children of their own. And so they will have yours. And for you to say anything against them shows that you are the bigot, shows that you are a person of hate. But if God can command senseless wind and senseless water, can he cannot command even the blind and deaf sinner? Can he not even give life to the heart of the person wrapped up in homosexuality and transgenderism? Can he not do that? Can God, can by his spirit, the Lord not rebuke that ideology? Can the Lord not give life where there is death? Peace where there is discord? He can. But even if he doesn't, even if evangelical Christians are continually attacked and marginalized and made to be the problem, there's good news. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know what? Jesus might not rebuke them. And that's okay, because Jesus is Lord. Whatever Jesus does is right. Well, then one of the great lines of that song that Gordon Lightfoot wrote about the Edmund, not Ella Fitzgerald. (coughs) She had her moments too, I guess. The Edmund Fitzgerald, a great line. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? I don't know what lake you're sailing on right now in your life. I don't know what winds are picking up against you. But I do know. And I hope, by God's spirit, you know who then this is. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the captain of our salvation, the one who commands all things. Have faith. Commit yourself to him. Don't turn back. Keep on going. Call out to him. Isaiah 28, 21 says, For the Lord will rise up. He will arouse himself to accomplish his work, to perform his task. Call out. On November 10th, 1975, the captain of the Edmund Fitzgerald never 
sent out a distress signal, and all 29 men on board perished. Are you swamped by sin? Call out! Are you tossed by trials? Call out! Are you pounded by persecutions? Call out! Call out to Jesus. He can save you. Is life flooding you? Find your faith in the unfailing God, the man, Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the answer to this question, who then is this that commands the wind and the waves and they obey? Lord, we thank you that when Jesus speaks, things happen. Lord, we thank you for the invitation of Jesus, the question that Jesus asks about our faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith Faith to call out and to turn to the man, Christ Jesus, our great high priest, who has taken upon himself our nature, that he might overcome and destroy the works of the devil. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts by faith in Christ to receive the life and health and perseverance that he provides. Lord, I pray that if there is someone in this room who has not come to Jesus for the first time, that, that your spirit would be working upon them to draw them to Christ, that they would talk to Pastor Jason, that they would talk to one of the others, that they would seek out how they may meet and know this Jesus who commands and all obey. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would strengthen us by it. In Jesus' name, amen.